Welcome, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about vaccine hesitancy. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the content, a lot of the media out there, has been very um, pro vaccine. Um, and I am too, just for the record. Uh, I did register. I do plan on taking my jab. But I think where the where we're combating vaccine hesitancy, I think, is falling quite short is the fact that the media isn't able to distinguish uh, between the legitimate worries of people who are maybe not necessarily anti-vaccine, but are this like wait and see group, this very cautious group, this very risk averse group. And it's, I think it's re it really is messing up the messaging. So for one, what has the media done so far? Um, they've basically been cheerleaders of the pharmaceutical companies and cheerleaders of government. And everything's pro, 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 pro. And anybody that's not pro is therefore against them. And I think that's a bit too simplistic. This is actually quite a complex uh, phenomenon. So we have uh, the media basically, you know, giving airtime to conspiracy theorists, to people who believe that the vaccine or getting the vaccine will give them the mark of the beast. It'll put in a computer chip uh, that can be remotely controlled. Um, there's a lot of Bill Gates conspiracies. We all know that. But I think that's the stuff that's very easy to dismiss or very easy to, um, to, to combat or to reply towards. But I think what, what's, what we're missing in the discourse is talking about the long-term effects of the vaccine. Um, I guess it's a very difficult conversation to have because, you know, long-term means, you know, what, what are the effects of the vaccine on the human body, you know, seven years after taking it, 10 years after taking it, 20 years after taking it. We don't really know because this thing is not even two years old. So those who do have um, those worries... I don't necessarily think they are irrational um, because I did see that there was one statistic. Um, I think the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA, they're the ones that approve all drugs and vaccines. And they've now approved one of the, I think it's the Pfizer jab. I think they've fully licensed it. Everything else was under emergency use authorization. But now somebody came, uh, I read where they basically said that the number of drugs that get recalled, meaning it went through the testing, it went through the accreditation, it got a full license, and then it got sold to the public. And now how many of those were then pulled off the shelves or um, were then had to have a new label uh, that, that would then, you know, convey the message of, oops, guys, this is actually not as safe as we thought it was before, uh, but just know this. And it turns out that they recall about 24% of every single drug they approve. And this is like, we're talking quite a long span. We're talking like, let's say, up to even, you know, 15 years after a drug is approved. And so even when we do need to trust the judgment of, um, you know, these, I guess we can call it a, a bureaucracy, so the bureaucrats, in these um, health regulators, is that they do get it wrong. 20, let's say 25% of the time. 
So it's not too crazy to think that maybe they're getting it wrong here. That's one thing. Um, but to get a bit deeper than that, the I, I did even get to read up on the reason or what's the motivating factor. Like why do these um, these you know entities in charge of public health get these things so wrong so often? And a lot of it, a lot of it's pointed towards the funding model or the business model of these regulators where they do get some funding from the state but the funding that especially when it comes to drugs drug approval uh, so vaccines are included that funding is obtained by the same people that they're supposedly judging whether the product is safe so uh, just to simply just say some more simple terms the FDA and in South Africa we would have the which is SAPRA they charge a fee um, for basically testing and approving because so going through that process of evaluating <clears throat> sorry evaluating whether a drug is safe the pharmaceutical company pays and the dependency on that uh, on those fees um, I think it accounts for about 65% of the of the income um, when it comes to just drug and vaccine approval and this wasn't always the case in fact um, this only became a thing uh, in the 90s where you know budgets were tight across the board people were slashing budgets and they were slashing the Department of Health budget and that means that the FDA budget um, was also going to be slashed. So they said, okay, no, any medical device, the Department of Health will fund that testing and that accreditation. But then any drug, the pharmaceutical companies are going to pay for that testing. So people said, yeah, sure. But now I had an issue where um, we are basically having a situation where the teams are paying the ref to tell whether they are you know, a good team or a bad team, like if, if you to use the football analogy. So now there's already like, I guess you can say if their income depends on the pharmaceutical companies, then we can't really say that this body is independent. And so why, why diving deep into the independence? Because now all our, our whole lives are now being dictated. Um, by you know health professionals and scientists in the health space uh because they have the science that we must trust the science and i myself am a science student so obviously you know once enough once enough evidence has come out people said okay fine this is the data the data says these vaccines are working it's reducing hospitalization it's reducing death so let's just roll it out but now the only problem is that this decision has, you know, huge ramifications because effectively, you know, the goal is to vaccinate the whole world. And if that's the goal, you know, we need to really trust that the people that are saying that these things are safe, the vaccines are safe, are saying it, you know, with an independent mind. Um, and 
what is a bit startling is um, to read about the data in terms of how many uh, employees of these um, health uh, drug um, product regulators end up going to work for the pharmaceutical companies. So what, what happens is, is that maybe they'll be on the approval board or approval committee for a drug. Maybe they'll be there for like, you know, 10 to 15 years. And then after that, about almost 20% all then go to work for these pharmaceutical companies. And so someone pointed out to me, so even if let's say they were, there was nothing untoward or there was nothing corrupt about their, uh, like before or while they were uh, at the agency, at the regulator, it could be that they were changing their judgments to be more favorable to pharmaceutical companies in the hopes that later they'll be rewarded with uh, a nice cushy paying job at these pharmaceutical companies. So that's already a big thing. This is happening. This is something that does happen. We have, uh, our, we call this the revolving door. So we do have a revolving door between regulator and player. Um, this is also the case in uh, finance, especially when it comes to treasury or reserve banks and how the the people that are supposedly in charge of regulating the industry do go end up working. So it is, um, it is quite tricky uh, given the fact, but I also do think that that's not something that should uh, be happening because it does cause serious doubt into you know how independent their thinking is so that's one um one big thing that i think you know if we have to really dive deeper into you know the supposed independence the unquestioned independence of these regulators i really do think we should ask more questions and maybe reform and actually change that and scrap it and, and go back to a uh, to a funding model that's fully funded by the state and by government instead of uh, by these pharmaceutical companies. Now, with with another thing to, to also consider is a lot of people are not sold that there is really that much of a benefit to getting the vaccine. Why, why do I say this? Is because through for the past you know especially in the early days for the first like 12 months of this pandemic you know the messaging was very clear um the people that were most at risk were the elderly they were the ones who were dying disproportionately they make up the most deaths um i think the data came out to say that somebody who's in the age group of 18 to like 29 um comparing to people in the 80 or 85 and up the 85 and up are like 6,000 times more likely, 600 or 6,000 times more likely to die from COVID. And that that data is what is what underpinned the decision or, or what informed the decision to have a staggered vaccine rollout where we start with the elderly first and then we come down younger and younger. Uh, many countries, in fact, I think all countries have adopted that. Um, I think one of the downsides uh, in terms of, you know, how does it affect vaccine hesitancy, is that I think it gave young people um, the idea, or it gave, it gave the perception that young people aren't really at risk 
um, and only you know gokos and uh, grannies and everybody else are really the ones that need to be sheltered in place and to to, to get this vaccine. So now um, I I do think that we have to be um, truthful, and it, it is true that yes, young people are not really affected by this very very few deaths very few people in especially from zero to 29 it's very very few deaths young people are you know relatively uh okay you know in a covert world in a non-covert world that's not really something tangible no no tangible difference and now and now also young people maybe were a bit indifferent about it but it's quite clear that yes it does really work well for the the elderly but now the other aspect of it is how easy is it to uh get a vaccine um a lot of you know i guess to to get to a vaccination site is one aspect you know to have the time to travel there uh, to have the money to travel because travel is not free um as i guess it's a way it has been stopping people from going and i think the response at least the rollout has responded to that uh, desire to roll out more sites to be closer to people um but i think the i think the the other issue is people are worried and i know that apparently i think they did a questionnaire and a survey on men um and they basically were able to to get people to say to confirm that part of the problem is that they are aware that the vaccine has side effects and some of them are you know they're not like small i mean some are you know some people have had uh headaches you know very sore necks uh i think their arms get a bit sore um, some people kind of have like a, a, some, a kind of like a smiled flu reaction to it. And their worry is that, yes, if I take the vaccine, there's a chance that I can take it and get side effects. And this, this is now, so the issue is, you know, can I really afford to be out of work from this vaccine? And um, so I guess that is one aspect. And I guess it doesn't really um, help if we're in a country where healthcare isn't free um, and the access to healthcare is, you know, very, it's, it's very difficult to access healthcare. So I do think that that is something that is stopping people from, from going to get the jab in the, in the, you know, in the, you know, small chance that they do react negatively to it um especially after the second jab this is what i've you know spoken to people and this is something that seems to be a a thing where the the side effects of the first jab are quite minimal but the second jab is quite uh, intense not intense but just much more so i think this is what's stopping people but now this is very important because it is highlighting the fact that yes the vaccine is free and you know at one stage the tests were free but the consequences of dealing with the side effects it's something that is an individual consequence it's not something that's also shared 
uh, in the absence of a universal health service or universal health guarantee or something similar to the NHS in the UK. And to me, that's actually quite um, it's something that yeah, should be dealt with because a lot of people are saying, well, the vaccine is free, so why don't people just want to get it? I mean, it's free, protect yourself. And But these are the same people that maybe are against a national health insurance or national health service. They, they have argued against it. I mean, I've seen that the government has released the, I want to call it the white paper or green paper where it's been up for comment. And they are in the, I think they're in the, not the final phase, but close to, you know, trying to implement it. And has had such heavy pushback. Uh, the national health insurance but what it's trying to do is trying to ensure that you know let anybody be ill or let anybody be injured let's you know make sure that they don't have to worry about you know the bills of that or the the financial cost of getting that care um and i i think a lot of the and I think we missed that. I think that's the, the most important point is that South Africa is so unequal that had the jab been something that people had to buy, then you'd have a huge chunk of people unable, they will simply say, I can't afford the vaccine. So if the vaccine is free and, you know, the recovery rate of, the, you know, from coronavirus is actually like extremely high. We're talking like the 99% around there. You know, what about conditions that, you know, are much more severe, uh, that are chronic because, you know, um, yes, do people do experience uh, long COVID where, you know, they the loss of smells, prolonged, um, they have other challenges, but, you know, People die necessarily from many things in South Africa, uh, like things like TB. We still have a lot of TB deaths. Um, we do have, I think, I think it might be as a dialysis. I think that's, I think, yeah, because I think a lot of people have issues with, I think it's their kidneys. And the access to that kind of healthcare is like, there's a huge backlog. You wait forever. You know, it's not an in and out quick thing. And I think the, you know, the funny thing now is that we've spent so much money on these vaccines that the vaccine demand is like so low compared to vaccine supply. Um, so I guess in that aspect, you can say that, you know, government has succeeded in getting a jab to everybody who actually wanted a jab. But I think, you know, we're not having... Um, deeper conversations about healthcare, healthcare access, the cost of healthcare. And a lot of people aren't, you know, coming together to support um, a national health insurance or national health service. And it's quite crazy because where they do have something like this, it's something that the citizens of that country are the most proud of. Like in the UK, they are very proud of the NHS. And I think even in their marketing throughout the whole pandemic, it's been save the NHS, protect the NHS. We love the NHS. Clap for our heroes, the frontline workers um, who are healing us. I think even Boris Johnson, he fell ill and he had a really, really bad um, experience with COVID-19. And 
you know, he went to that um, NHS and he got that, you know, assistance. And, you know, for all intents of purposes, you know, they did save him. You know, they did a really good job. They didn't let go. They gave him his full attention. So it's something that it's something you know they're very proud of, and the same is it's quite the same with um, Canada. You know they also have uh, the same system there. So for for so for South Africa, I think um, the the broader discussion that one should have is that a part of the hesitancy is you know dealing with the side effects. Um, and even getting COVID, you know, do we have the health facilities, equipment, you know, labor or, or, you know, people that are in that space to ensure that people don't have to worry about being ill and not getting uh, the assistance and attended to? I think this is important because, you know, if people do find it that the hesitancy, the source of their hesitancy is dealing with the side effects and the side effects you know you can't really claim much from this um no fault compensation fund for covid i think it only really needs like serious side effects but there's a cost to people there's a cost um but i think the that's just that's number two but i think the third one or this the fourth point but it's my next point um is that people are very uneasy about you know, the conversations going on in the media about uh, vaccine mandates because of the fact that this vaccine demand is so much lower than vaccine supply. And um, I've seen on ENCA, they've had discussions like, I think it's one politician from Limpopo who was saying or consider or wanting to start the discussion about trying to say, um, if you don't get the vaccine, then you can't purchase alcohol. Uh, many, I think, I think I've seen employers come out. One of them being Curo, they own a listed company, they own private schools, and I think they came out saying teachers that work for them, if they do not get vaccinated by November or December, then they're going to face retrenchment. So this is when it starts to get very uncomfortable. People are feeling like, why are we being... I mean, and also, let me just, you know, disclaimer. No one is saying people are being forced to the point where they're being, you know, held down by a cop and then a nurse jabs them. No. But let's not pretend as if, you know, in South Africa we have... Um, I think it came out just the last week that we have the highest unemployment rate. So the threat of the loss of your livelihood in... A country with the highest unemployment rate i think it's quite a big threat it's, it's and i think it makes people you know feel like you know they're being forced to do something that hasn't really proven to be 100 percent safe and nothing is 100 percent safe but i mean safe enough to say that yes this is safe don't even stress about it you know and part of part of that you know is really it's a really tricky thing i don't know where it comes from this this whole idea that no no vaccination then no social security grants um no vaccination then you can't attend stadiums no vaccination you can't attend festivals basically no vaccination you can't you know have a pleasant life an enjoyable life a fun life 
And I, I really do think that that's the wrong angle or the wrong way to go about it. Uh, I think the one thing that was so, um, so, what was very nice to see, and I want to ask quite jealous myself, was the Premier League, the English Premier League, where the opening weekend and they all had fans and it was packed and there was no masks and people were enjoying themselves. And I was like, okay, well, contrast that to our stadiums where we know I'll be watching, you know, the Springboks and we're watching our local clubs, you know, the Pirates and Sundowns and all of them playing empty stadiums uh, here in South Africa. And I found it to be quite interesting given that um, there is a way to get people back to um, quote unquote normal life using uh, the example of the Premier League. They basically said, hey, if you want to come to come watch a game, come to the grounds, you have to either be fully vaccinated, meaning both jabs, or if it's a one jab vaccine, one jab. And then, or you can just, you know, show that you have a negative test. And I think this is actually quite important that either, either one of those two and you're good to go. Because just because you're fully vaccinated, that doesn't mean that you can't have covid that you can't be infected with it and that you can't spread it it's been true i think they call this breakthrough cases and i think that does make sense because if you if you're having a packed stadium full of people who've been vaccinated but you know half of them actually have covid then it is a super spread event and it defeats the whole purpose you know but if you're saying well look there's the two you know here's another option just show us that you're negative and i think that's not a bad um it's not a bad approach but now both of these require either the vaccine or the tests now the tests are you know the tests where you know it's a bit more thorough and more accurate i think those tests go around about a thousand two thousand five hundred rand and then we have the rapid tests which are a bit cheaper i think they're around like two to four hundred bucks um but i mean it's quite um it's, it's a bit it's a bit of a uh, the question is really should government then fully fund and make sure that um there is enough uh covert tests to ensure that whoever needs to go somewhere they can get the test done and then it's valid for three days because i've seen the approach uh this i think this was france where they are wanting to mandate the vaccine um and they were fully paying for the tests, but they've now wanted to prioritize people getting vaccinated. So they're gonna say you can have you can either you know show a negative test or be vaccinated, but the government is no longer paying for the tests. So that means that you as an individual must pay to prove that you are okay. Now that's quite problematic given that you know you need to show this you know show this negative test uh at a inside a restaurant uh at games and all sorts of stuff so that cost is actually quite expensive because i think the last time i checked um the ticket price of you know going to like an fnb stadium to go sit on the grounds there i think it was like 20 rand so the actual ticket to sit there 20 bucks but then the proof you need to sit there is going to be 200 to 1,500 bucks. And if you're trying to do that, you know, every weekend, you know, that's 
you know, that's, you know, must multiply that cost by, you know, 52. So if you need to be spending a thousand bucks to get yourself tested every, every week, I mean, that's like, you know, over 50,000 Rand a year. So I think that's now a bit, um, it's, it's almost like another false choice, uh, if it's not being funded. So I, I do think that we have to consider, you know, ways to accommodate people, um, those that are vaccine hesitant, because, you know, some are, you know, seeing their friends and their, you know, some people in their family that have gotten the jab and said, okay, mm, seems good. All right. And they came and some of them have taken the vaccine, had COVID and, you know, swear that, you know, it would have been worse if they'd not taken the vaccine and evidence points towards that. But I do think that we really need to deal with, you know, those aspects. You know, one is, you know, really, you know, challenging or yeah, challenging the notion that all these um, drug and vaccine regulators are truly independent. I think that's not true. Their conduct hasn't, especially in the past, hasn't really given that confidence. And you know, painting the pharmaceutical companies like our saviors when, you know, they've had huge, huge, huge mistakes and they had to pay huge fines, you know, for the likes of Johnson & Johnson with the baby powder. Um, and I think another whole outbreak with, also another whole like mass death event with the op opioid crisis. So I do think we have a lot to consider, but I'm going to wrap that up for now. I think, you know, vaccine hesitancy, that's where we need to attack it from but otherwise yeah let's not be divisive let's be inclusive and let's try and accommodate people